Everyone loves to listen to a good book, and there are so many wonderful ones to choose, so we decided to bring you this podcast of Stories Come to Life. Each episode features a story from either classic or modern literature, especially chosen to be interesting and exciting to hear. So sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. Welcome to Stories Come to Life. I am your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Finally, the time has arrived for the seat perilous to be filled. Sir Bors, who is a very valiant and virtuous knight, is granted a special vision in which he sees the knight who will fill the seat, although when Sir Bors sees him, he is still a tiny baby. King Arthur also has some wonderful adventures when he is taken to a hidden and dangerous castle. And do you remember King Pellinore? His youngest son, Percival, has one great desire, to join the Knights of the Round Table. His coming coincides with a marvelous miracle, and it is all in preparation for the arrival of the long-awaited knight, Sir Galahad. Now sit back, relax, and listen to this story come to life. King Arthur and His Knights The Vision of Sir Bors Sir Bors was a very large knight, tall and strong, as you might have guessed from the sound of his name. One day he was riding along a grassy road, when he saw a building with high gray walls and towers like a castle, half hidden among great clumps of fine trees. A river ran around it, and across the river was arched a stone bridge. Immediately, Sir Bors felt a great desire to enter the castle. He turned his horse's head that way, and, trotting over the bridge, drew near to the beautiful building. A knight rode out through the gates and tried to stop his way, but Sir Bors fought him and conquered him. Then, sparing the other's life, he rode proudly into the courtyard of the castle and was met by the king who owned it. The king's name was Pelus, and he was always ready to welcome a brave and merciful knight. He greeted Sir Bors courteously, and led him into the great hall. And no sooner was Sir Bors inside, than he felt a strange awe and wonder creeping over him. It seemed to him that this castle was not like any other castle in the world. It was full of strange lights and shadows, whisperings and rustlings, coolness and perfume. Little birds, sparkling like jewels, flew about the gold and purple glass of the windows. Their wings were almost transparent. Their heads bore tiny crowns. And, most beautiful of all among them, was a white one, like a tiny dove, that flitted again and again through the shadowy hall, carrying in her bill a little golden goblet hung on three chains. Truly, thought Sir Bors to himself, I am in the very heart of fairyland. And indeed, with so much unusual and mystic beauty about him, it was not strange that he believed himself to be in the land of the fairies. Then, while the dove still flitted about the hall, a table mysteriously appeared, covered with honeyed cakes and ripe fruits, 
and crystal goblets filled with crimson wine. The knight and the king sat down to eat and drink. When they had finished, Sir Bors felt so light in body, so refreshed, so calm and rested, that he wondered what sort of fairy food he had been eating. As he wondered, he looked up and saw King Pelles watching him. Sir Bors, said the king gently and gravely, you have always been a good and pure knight. I hope so, answered Sir Bors. I have wished to be and striven to be all my life. You must have been, replied the king, or you would never have seen the little white dove, nor have eaten the mysterious food on the mysterious table. And now something still more wonderful is going to be shown to you. As the king finished speaking, the hall grew darker, and at the far end a golden light appeared. Then in the heart of the golden light, which floated all around her like a sunset cloud, appeared a slim and beautiful lady who, Sir Bors thought, looked like a fair princess. But when he looked again, he saw she was not an ordinary human being. She seemed a sort of delicate spirit, and she moved like a spirit through the dim shadows of the hall, her feet barely touching the floor, her hair shining like sunlight, pale wings folded upon her shoulders, and pale hands clasped around what looked like a wondrously beautiful silver cup. From the mouth of the cup rose a still flame, like the flame of a candle, and it was as if this flame shed all the brightness which surrounded the maiden's form. She passed slowly by, and Sir Bors watched, breathless. Then he turned wondering to King Pelles. Who is she? he asked under his breath. What is that cup she carries? The king answered in a voice that seemed to come from very far away. She is who she is, and of the cup you have often heard. Is it? whispered Sir Bors. Can it be the cup of the spirit world? The silver chalice that we knights call the Holy Grail? Yes, replied King Pelles. It is the Holy Grail. Here in this castle it has been hidden for years. But look again. Then Sir Bors looked again, and down the hall, in the very track of the golden maiden, stepping through the lingering, fading radiance she had shed, came a princess with a tiny sleeping babe in her arms. She stepped very softly towards Sir Bors and held the baby toward him for him, too, to look at. He thought he had never seen a lady so lovely, nor a child so like a flower. This is my daughter, the Princess Elaine, said the king, speaking more softly than ever, and the little child is her son, Galahad. He was born in the castle of the Hidden Grail. He it is who will sit in the seat perilous one day, on the right hand of King Arthur, the seat that has been empty so long. But when Galahad takes his seat there, what? asked Sir Bors, touching the child very gently with his big forefinger. What? But King Pelles did not answer. He shook his head and fell silent again. The Princess Elaine smiled at her little baby and then at Sir Bors. 
It will be a wonderful day, she said under her breath. The most wonderful day that the knights of the round table have ever seen. We have had many adventures, replied Sir Bors. We have seen the fairy hunt and followed the great white stag. We have done homage to the ladies of the lake and have slain giants and killed terrible beasts and taken over the guardianship of the fairy fountain under the green tree. We have wandered in the enchanted forest and seen the fairy salmon and ridden on his back. What is this adventure that will come with Galahad, the little babe here, who is to grow up into such a wonderful knight? But still neither the king nor the princess would answer. They only smiled and shook their heads and told him to follow them up the stairs of the castle, and then they would show him a sight even more wonderful than all the rest. So up the stairs of the castle went Sir Bors, with the king and the princess who still carried the babe, leading the way. And as they went, the whisperings and the rustlings began again all around them. The little birds flew with them, while the staircase window shed purple and silver lights upon their heads. Upon the princess's shoulder alighted the small white dove, and bent low its head, murmuring and cooing toward the babe, and swinging the little golden bowl on the three slim chains toward the child's fingers. And tiny Galahad awoke and caught at the pretty shining thing and cried out with delight. Just ahead of the procession it seemed to Sir Bors that the spirit of the strange castle, or whoever that lovely lady might be, moved dimly yet brightly with the silver cup held in her white fingers and always the golden light that came from the candle flame shone on her face and hands and hair. They went on, up and up and up. Then, just under the high roof of the castle, they came to a closed door, studded with massive iron nails. The maiden vanished, and Sir Bors thought she had slipped through the door, just as a moonbeam might pass through the glass of a window but the king brought out a great gold key from his pocket and put it into the lock. He turned it with a grating sound and pushed the door wide open. Then, though all was dark on the staircase, a great light, like the brilliance of a summer day, poured out of the room under the castle roof. The little birds flew in as if they had found their home, and the white dove spread its wings as it perched on the princess's shoulder and followed the rest. Then came a burst of song from the joyful birds, now settled among the blossoming branches of trees, and the scent of flowers, to Sir Bors it seemed almost like almond bloom, came out of the room together with their music. But when he peeped in expecting somehow to see a garden, he saw not a garden, but a room full of shadows. In the center of the room, stood a table exactly like the round table in every way, except that instead of being made of oak, it was made of the brightest, purest silver. And in the center of the table stood Joseph's lost, shining cup. Sir Bors stood and drank in the beautiful sight with his soul gazing out of his eyes. Then, because he could stand it no longer, for he seemed to be in the heart of some place that was far more beautiful than fairyland. He hid his face in his hands. 
When he uncovered his eyes again, King Pelis had closed the door, and Princess Elaine was singing the babe to sleep on the stairs. Go back to King Arthur, said the king. Tell him what you have seen, and bid all the knights of the round table await the coming of Galahad. King Arthur in the Castle Perilous After King Arthur and King Pellinore and Sir Gawain had followed the mysterious hunt into the enchanted forest, they never knew at what hour of the day or of the night either. They might not hear the horns of fairyland blowing and catch a glimpse of the long string of black hounds streaming through the meadow grasses after the beautiful white stag with the silver hoofs and the horns that were like the branches of trees. Many and wonderful were the adventures that befell them, and not only them, but all the other knights of the round table. Sometimes the fairy hunt led them into startling danger, sometimes into strange and beautiful places, but always they found that there was a lady in distress to be rescued, a giant to be killed, a brave gentleman to be helped, or something else to be done that was included in the great vow. One day Arthur was hunting with his knights on the borders of the enchanted forest, following a big stag, which was not, however, the one with the fairy hoofs that shone so brightly upon the moss. The king rode his horse far from his companions, and presently overtook the fine stag and shot it with a swift arrow from his bow. The stag fell by the side of a river, and Arthur dismounted to see if it were quite dead. As he stood there, the dim, thrilling notes of the elfin horns came to him, and in an instant, on the opposite side of the water, he caught a glimpse of the flying white deer of fairyland, and of the shadowy, speeding bodies of the coal-black hounds. Arthur's horse began to tremble. In another moment it had broken free and was galloping home as fast as it could. It might well be frightened, for as the fairy hunt disappeared into the shadows, the entire forest grew as dark as midnight, while down the glimmering black waters of the river a little ship came sailing, with a hundred torches burning in a hundred silver holders and lighting it from end to end. Nobody was steering or guiding the ship, but it sailed on as if a clever hand were at the helm. And when it reached the place where Arthur stood, it swung about on the water and lay rocking as if it were at anchor, close against the bank where the willows grew. Now, here is my adventure, said King Arthur to himself, quite joyful and fearless and filled with the thrill of high adventure. It is plain that this little ship lit up with a hundred torches has come to take me somewhere. In his green hunting dress, he strode down through the willows and boarded the ship. Off it floated again the moment he was aboard. And when he looked up at the sails above his head, he saw that they were all made of white silk and embroidered with pink roses and poppies the color of blood. The little ship went on down the river, and the flaming torches were mirrored in the dark stream like so many stars. The king seemed to be quite alone on board, when all at once, rising up as it seemed from the water, twelve beautiful maidens appeared and made a ring about him, 
joining hands and dancing as gracefully as fairies dance on a moonlit night around anybody who was lucky enough to be able to see them. Then they all fell on their knees and said how glad they were that he had boarded the little ship, and what a delicious feast was spread for him if he would go below. So below King Arthur went and found a cabin hung with white satin. Silver candlesticks with clear burning candles were set on a table, spread with fruit and honey, white bread and red wine. He sat down to eat, and the twelve beautiful maidens waited on him. When he had finished, they led him to a room hung with crimson satin, and he lay down on a blue and silver bed and fell asleep. But when he awoke, the beautiful ship in the blue and silver bed and the crimson satin of the hangings had all disappeared. He found himself in a dark dungeon, lying on a stone floor with twenty other knights, who were all groaning in the deepest trouble, and asking one another if nobody would ever come to help them. King Arthur sat up and rubbed his eyes. Where am I? he asked the knights in astonishment. And who are all of you? Alas! Alas! cried all the twenty together. We are twenty prisoners, and we have been thrown into this dungeon by the cruel lord of the castle, and here he will keep us until we die of hunger, as many have died here before us, for we can only be rescued when a knight has been found who is brave enough and strong enough to fight with the lord of the castle and to conquer him, and that nobody is ever likely to do. But indeed there is now a knight among you who is quite brave enough and strong enough to try, cried King Arthur. Here is the adventure to which I have been brought by a little ship with silken sails and twelve dancing fairies aboard. Tell me how to get out of this dungeon, and I will soon challenge the lord of the castle to fight. Even as he said the words, a light seemed to appear from nowhere, and he saw a beautiful girl dressed like a princess. "'standing beside him with a gleaming silver lamp in her slender hand. "'Follow me,' said the maiden. "'I am the princess of this castle, "'and I will do everything in my power to help save these poor prisoners.' "'Immediately King Arthur sprang to his feet and followed her, "'eager to help set free the suffering prisoners. "'She led him out of the dungeon, "'and each of the twenty knights rose to his feet and followed.' as soon as the fair lady had unlocked and opened the door. She took them all to the hall of the castle and gave King Arthur armor to wear over his green hunting clothes, and she pointed to a war-horse that stood champing its bit in the courtyard outside. Mount the horse, she said. Take your sword, your shield, and your spear. The lord of the castle is in the meadow on his great black steed, waiting for someone to do battle with him for his prisoners. Every morning he waits, trotting up and down. But no antagonists ever come. They know too well how very small is the chance they have against him. Arthur was already dressed in the bright armor, and had taken up his shield and spear. But when he looked at the sword, he shook his head. I cannot fight with that sword, he cried. Alas, alas! Where is my magic sword Excalibur? Then the beautiful lady laughed, put her hand behind her, and brought forth what looked like King Arthur's own sword, 
Excalibur. And the king with great joy took it into his hand and set off for the meadow. With all the twenty knights, pale and thin, and trembling between hope and fear, walking two and two behind him. This was indeed a great adventure, much greater than King Arthur suspected, for this ship was a witch's ship, and the twelve dancing fairies were wicked fairies, and the lady who called herself the princess of the Castle Perilous was the wickedest fairy of them all. Because you must know, Morgane la Fay, Arthur's sister, had made herself queen of the water witches, and she wished her brother, the king, to be killed. So she had set all this magic afoot, and had also stolen Arthur's real sword Excalibur, and given it to the knight who was waiting for the king in the meadow, prancing up and down over the daisies on his great strong horse. When he saw Arthur coming, he rode toward him with a great shout, waving the stolen Excalibur around and around his head. The king spurred his own horse forward, and the two met with a ringing crash of steel. Over and over they struck at each other. But King Arthur felt with anguish that his own sword was not striking keen and true. Then, even in the thick of the battle, he found time to gaze at the beautiful jewels in the scabbard of the sword that his enemy used so cleverly and well, and instantly the king guessed that some terrible treachery was at work, that the other knight was fighting with the true Excalibur, and that the sword in his own hands was not even made of fighting steel. As Arthur realized this, he wavered in his saddle and almost fell, the wicked lord who fought him swung Excalibur high to strike the last blow. But at that very moment, the waters of the river, which flowed around the meadow, were suddenly and strangely disturbed. Out of the sparkling foam sprang a figure no less sparkling, and across the grass swept a beautiful lady with dripping golden hair and a long silver gown trailing yards behind her. It was the water fairy who had brought up Sir Lancelot. She had heard from the moorhens and the little fishes of the plot made by Morgane la Fay, and was hurrying as fast as she could to the rescue. She swept past the twenty pale knights and stood poised on her little white feet, just above the grass, half resting on the meadow flowers and half hanging on her misty wings in the air. She waved her white hands and cried out magical words in a voice that was as clear and musical as the babbling of the brook. And the wicked lord on the big horse dropped Excalibur almost into Arthur's very hands. The king seized his own good sword again by its jeweled hilt, and with a shout of victory stabbed his enemy through the breast. The big knight fell heavily to the ground and lay there, very, very sorely hurt. His servants came running from the castle and carried him in. He got better in the end, <laughs> but nobody cared much about that. What everybody did care about was that the twenty imprisoned knights were set free and went joyfully home to their twenty faithful wives. 
the Lady of the Lake, slid back into her shining babbling river. Arthur, carrying Excalibur, galloped off to Camelot. And as for the twelve wicked fairies, and the thirteenth who was the wickedest of all, no doubt they went on dancing forever, on the little ship with the hundred torches and the embroidered silken sails. They were only water fairies, you see, and they had done what the queen of the water witches had ordered them to do. And after all, it had been a right noble and fine adventure for King Arthur, and, as he had come out of it victorious, <laughs> he had no reason to complain. Sir Percival and the Silent Maid Sir Percival was the seventh son of King Pellinore, and because he was the youngest, his mother loved him best of all her children. She would have liked to keep him a child forever, and was very glad he was too young to go to the wars with his father and his six elder brothers. She wanted him always to stay in the meadows near the castle, playing with a golden battledore and a silver shuttlecock among the flowers. But little Percival was too active and vigorous to do things like these. He taught himself skill and strength by running in the forest, by breaking sticks from the strong trees, and by throwing them cleverly at targets, which he invented and set up all alone. And one day, while he was practicing with these sticks, he saw three of the shining knights of the round table come riding through the wood. In breathless excitement he watched them pass, and then ran full tilt to his mother in the castle, and describing these bright strangers, asked her who they could be. Now the queen knew very well that they were knights, but she would not say so to her young son. She told him that they must be angels, hoping he would forget about them. But young Percival squared his shoulders and felt the muscle of his arms. If those are angels, then I will be an angel too, said he. And he set off running after the knights as fast as he could. He found them resting in a green glade, with their horses tethered to the trees. And they told him they were no angels, but knights from Arthur's court. Then the boy examined their armor and the trappings of their horses, and watched them wistfully when they saddled their steeds again and rode away. He was determined to join them, so he took a queer old piebald horse from a field hard by, pressed a pack into the form of a saddle, and twisted some supple twigs into the shape of a bit and bridle. Then, looking the funniest rider you ever saw, he trotted off on the piebald horse to his mother, told her that the shining visitors to the forest were not angels but knights, and that, as he was very nearly grown up, he meant to follow them to Arthur's court and be admitted to the fellowship of the round table. His mother wept bitterly, but when she saw he was quite determined, she said that no king's son could go to Arthur's court in that pickle, and she gave him a suit of armor and a good horse with as royal a saddle and bridle as he could wish. Also, she told him that if he wanted to become a knight of the round table, he must be courteous to all he met on the road, and must never fail to rescue any lady who called on him for help. Then she kissed him goodbye, and watched him set off quite alone, for he declared that he would not have even a little page to keep him company. 
He rode for several days through the deep forests and over the high granite hills, and presently he saw the towers of Camelot in a valley by a river. So he rode down into the valley and approached the castle gate. Now, at this time, wonderful things were happening in Arthur's kingdom. Strange fires were seen at night, burning on the tops of the mountains, and sometimes flickering deep in the forest glades. Voices and the music of harps were heard when the moon was full, and the voices sang of a great treasure which was hidden somewhere in west over the sea, and which would heal the whole world of ills if it could only be found. In the evenings, when Arthur's knights gathered about the round table, a radiance would sometimes fall upon the seat perilous, and the fiery letters that spelled its name would shine forth again, as they had in Merlin's time, and sometimes other writing glimmered there also, writing which said that the time was coming when the seat perilous would be filled. All these things made the people of the court wonder and talk in whispers together, asking what signs so strange could mean, and where the knight who was deemed worthy to sit in the seat perilous could be found. Among the ladies of the court was a beautiful maiden, who had been born quite silent. Her lips were red and sweet and soft, but they had never formed a single word. Her throat was as white and round as the cup of a lily, yet it had never trembled with speech, nor swelled with pretty songs, such as the other ladies sang. She sat all day over her embroidery, with quiet eyes and drooping head, but she seemed always to be listening, listening for somebody who did not come. She was seated by the castle window when young Percival rode through the gate. As her quick ears heard his horse's hoofs, she raised her head swiftly. A great flush of joy swept over her pale, sweet face, and she laid her embroidery down. Then she rose, and going into the hall, hid herself behind a curtain, rich with tapestry, which hung near the door. Percival was met in the courtyard by a knight who, when he heard the young writer's name, led him straight to Arthur, and told the king that Pellinore's son had come to ask for knighthood at his hands. Arthur summoned Percival, but almost laughed to see him so beardless and young. He knighted him, however, for his father's sake. But that evening, when the time came for the feast to be held at the round table, the king bade Percival go and sit with the young, unproved knights at the far end of the hall. For, said he, you are not yet old enough, nor strong enough, nor, I think, brave enough, to sit with the tried knights at the round table, and to join in the great vow. Then Percival was very downcast, for he thought he was going to lose his heart's desire. He walked slowly and sadly down the great hall, and seated himself among the lesser, humbler knights near the door. But at that moment he heard a great murmur run through the banqueting room. Out from behind the tapestry came the beautiful, silent girl, and as she walked toward him, she spoke aloud. Rise from your humble seat, Percival, the noble knight and the chosen knight, 
and come with me. She took him by the hand and he rose to his feet and walked with her up the long hall, while everybody watched in amazed silence. She led him to the seat at the right of the seat perilous and pointed with her slender finger. Fair knight, take here your seat, said she, for that seat belongs to you and to none other. Then she went away as quickly as she had come and disappeared from the palace forever. There were some who said she was dead, but others said that they thought she had gone away into the forest, for they had seen bright people come for her and lead her away into the shadows of the wooded hills. As for Sir Percival, he stood by the seat which she had shown him, shy and hesitating. But King Arthur himself rose, and going to the young knight, took him gravely and kindly by the hand. Do not be afraid, Sir Percival, he said. We, the king and the knights of the round table, have watched the silent maiden sitting day by day, and hour by hour over her embroidery in the queen's chamber. We have seen her go to the window and gaze earnestly across the hills. We knew that she waited for somebody who would come. And now, as everyone has heard, her lips have opened at last. Who is there who shall not listen and believe when the silent speak? Take your place next to the seat perilous. Be sure that no harm will come to you. Then... Sir Percival sat down next to the seat perilous, and as he did so, the far-off fires on the hills appeared again and leaped into higher flames and seemed to reach up to the very stars. The singing that people heard in the sky swept down to the roofs of Camelot and around the windows of the banqueting hall. The voices of the knights as they stood shoulder to shoulder and hand to hand rang out in the words of the great vow and came to a sudden stop. It seemed to them as if something ought to be added to the vow today, but what it was they did not yet understand. The time was coming, however, when everything was to be made plain, and when the whole world would know what it was that Merlin had written in the little book, which he had hidden in his fairy palace in the enchanted wood. Galahad. All the knights of the round table were at supper one evening, when the adventure of Sir Galahad began. It began with a lady on a white horse, who rode in at the open doorway, calling for Sir Lancelot of the lake. King Arthur pointed him out, and she beckoned to him with a queenly hand, and told him to follow her. So away they rode into the forest, the lady in front, and Sir Lancelot a little way behind. She reminded him of his own fairy of long ago as she moved on, pale and beautiful, among the shadowy trees. Presently they came to a great building, and the lady dismounted and gave her horse to a page who hastened out to meet them. Sir Lancelot dismounted too, and the lady waved him goodbye. He was almost sure now it was his own fairy, and disappeared into the building. Then, after a few moments, came a sound of singing, and a procession of women in white hoods swept out through the gates. In the middle of the procession walked a youth, slim, upright, and very fair. 
And who may you be? asked Sir Lancelot, taking his hand. The good women made answer for him. They all spoke together, and their voices rustled through the trees like a soft summer breeze. His name is Galahad, said they. His mother, the Princess Elaine, gave him long ago into our care. We have brought him up among everything that is fair and innocent. He is as beautiful as the young thorn tree that grew from Joseph's staff, and as pure as the snow that lies on its branches on Christmas Day. Take him to Arthur's court, and ask Sir Bors if he remembers the baby in the castle of the Hidden Grail. Then Sir Lancelot looked at Galahad, and the boy met his glance with quiet, frank eyes. The good women said good-bye to him, and sighing a little, went back into the castle, two and two together. And all through the night, Sir Lancelot and Galahad rested under the forest trees. At dawn, Lancelot drew his sword and made the youth a knight under the shining of the morning star, saying, May you be good forever, Sir Galahad, for you are the most beautiful knight I have ever seen. Sir Galahad lifted his face to the dawn and smiled. But when Sir Lancelot would have taken him straight to Camelot, he shook his head. Not yet, said he, gravely and mysteriously. I will come at Whitsuntide. So he went away through the brightening morning, and Sir Lancelot watched until he was out of sight. Then the older knight rode back to King Arthur's court, reaching Camelot, just as the evening shadows were falling, and the knights were gathering together as usual about the round table. Then before they all sat down, the same thing happened that had happened at the king's wedding banquet many years ago. Every seat began to glow with letters of shining gold, which spelled out the name of the knight who always sat there. And upon the seat perilous, the letters flamed brightest and purest of all, but they read differently from the old mysterious warning and the knights and barons reading, spoke to each other in grave whispers. The many, many years that Merlin told us were to pass before the seat might be filled have passed away. King Arthur drew near and looked at the words for a long, long time. He remembered many things that Merlin had told him before the great wizard fell asleep in Brusseliand. At last he turned to his own place at the round table. Cover the seat perilous with a silken covering, he commanded. Let no one touch it, nor go too near. Something beautiful and strange is about to happen to our great company. Even as he spoke, a rider galloped up to the door and, springing from his horse, clanked in among the knights, crying breathlessly, Sirs, sirs, a great adventure is awaiting you all. When they asked what it was, he answered that on the waters of the river was floating a vast stone that looked like red marble, and that from it stood out a fair, rich sword with a handle of precious stones. And where was the knight for whom the sword was intended, if not among those who sat at the round table at Camelot? Then all the knights and the king and the queen went down to the river, and as they had been told, there was the red stone floating 
with the bright sword in the middle of it. Sir Lancelot, Sir Bors, Sir Geraint, Sir Gawain, Sir Gareth, all tried to draw it out, but in vain. Even Sir Percival failed. So they went back to the darkening banqueting hall, where they seemed to hear strange voices whispering about the doors and windows. These, as the company entered, closed of themselves. As they closed, a bright light like a summer morning filled the hall, and a smell of hawthorn blossoms drifted through it, with the song of merry birds. Then, before the knights had recovered from their wonder, they saw, standing among them, an old man with a long white beard, who had two strange bright snakes twisting around his neck, and a harp in his hands. By his side stood Galahad, dressed all in crimson satin, with a mantle of ermine hanging from his shoulders, and an empty scabbard swinging at his side. The old man stood close by the seat perilous, and now he raised the silken covering with his frail white hand. Then everybody saw that the golden letters had changed a third time. This is the place of Sir Galahad, the High Prince, ran the beautiful writing, and the old man took Galahad's hand and drew him to the wonderful seat. As the young fair knight took his place, a long murmur of admiration and gladness ran around the table, and King Arthur cried out aloud, It is for Sir Galahad that the sword is waiting, the sword which is fastened to the red marble stone that floats upon the stream. Old man, you have Merlin's look, Merlin's long white beard, Merlin's wonderful wise eyes. Tell us, is not this so? The old man bowed his head, struck his harp, and began to sing. He sang the story of Joseph, of the rich fisher, of the silver table, and of the shining cup. He sang of all that the round table meant, and of the new adventure to which the knights must vow themselves from that day. An adventure not of lovely ladies, nor cruel giants, nor strange fairy hunts, but a search, a quest, for the treasure which had once been hidden in the strange gray castle where Sir Galahad was born. This young pure knight, so sang the old man, was the first knight of the Grail. Now all the other knights of the round table must follow in his steps. Only the pure, the true, the good could ever find the lost treasure. Sir Bors had had a glimpse of it. So too had Sir Percival, Sir Lancelot, and others. But to Sir Galahad alone had it been a beautiful thing that formed a part of his daily life. While the old man sang, Sir Galahad sat quietly in the seat perilous, his hand on his empty scabbard. By and by he rose, and went out of the banqueting hall, down to the river, which flowed black and silver through the night. The stone rocked softly on the dark water, and the handle of the sword glowed above. Sir Galahad drew it from the red marble and went back. Then the knights all sprang to their feet and acclaimed him, for they saw the fairy sword in his hand 
as they shouted their joy in him, the hall went quite dark again, and everybody was, as if at a signal, very quiet. For among the shadows of flame, like the flame of a candle could be seen. The slim flame grew and grew until it became a great soft glowing light. In the red heart of it moved a spirit who looked like the beautiful, silent girl. She floated through the hall, and her feet made no sound. In her hands she held aloft the shining cup of the grail. The vision lasted but a moment before it faded. Then everything was dark again. But in the hush, the old man began to sing once more. And the moon, suddenly shining through the window, showed Sir Galahad, clad in silver armor. The queer bright snakes that twisted about the old minstrel's neck and the great company of shadowy knights, seated at the round table, listening to the song of the Holy Grail. This is your host, Catherine Lopez Luker. Thank you for joining us for this episode of Stories Come to Life. Be sure to join us next time when we continue to listen to stories of King Arthur and his knights. If you enjoy this podcast, please send an email to kluker at marshallpl.org to tell me of your favorite stories. I'll talk to you again soon.